All right, we, I don't know if you remember, some of you will, but there was a wonderful Christian kids program in the 90s called Adventures and Odyssey. I got some fans, got some fans, uh, radio programs, cartoons, but primarily these radio programs that then you could buy in collections on cassette tape and then CD. And now if you still really want to know, you can go find them on like iTunes and stuff. They're there. Uh, but there was one I loved as a kid. We didn't have many because we, we really didn't have the money to buy them. Uh, but there's one that I got, um, and it was called The Search for Wit, The Search for Whitaker. And it was awesome because essentially it was like Adventures in Odyssey meets Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade meets Jason Bourne, all in one. And the whole, the whole premise was Whitaker is in this archaeological dig over in the Holy Land, and this tape shows up one day uh, on, on the uh, Wits End's doorstep, and Eugene finds it, and he's listening to it, and it's real weird, and all of a sudden Whitaker says, oops, someone's coming, and then it, this weird language. And, um, and then, you know, they begin to decipher it, and it's in backwards, and basically all what's going on is Whitaker, part of this dig, they have discovered a, an ancient document that as the story goes on, you discover this ancient document claims to be a gospel, but it has a different ending than the four gospels. And in this gospel, it ends and states that Jesus did not in fact rise from the grave, but his disciples came, they, they got some people, fought the Roman guards, stole his body. And what would this be? And there's all these groups trying to get it in this and that. And it's got this great ending where you come to discover that the document is, uh, it is an authentic document, but it's an authentic document that was written to counter the claim. There's all this story. So it's, it's not a true document about Christ. And they, they walk through it all. And, and Whitaker basically makes this line because Eugene is a new believer and he's real worried by this. And Whitaker says, um, basically, our faith has to rest in the word of God, what God has said. And there may be things that come up and things that people say, but you've got to ultimately decide where do you fall and, and go into there. And I tell you that because when we come to what we're looking at tonight, which we would call canonization, how did we get the canon of the Bible? Or real simply put, how do we get the Bible you and I have today, at least as far as the fact that our, our translations of the Bible recognize 66 divinely inspired books of the Bible? How, how do we get there? Because as we said several weeks ago, the Bible was written by over 40 different authors over a period of, uh, of 2,000 years in vastly different settings, settings and places. So the Bible didn't all of a sudden just come down out of heaven glowing one day just as it is. At one point, there was only Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. At some point, Joshua was written and added in. At some point, at some point, so how did we get this? And I'll tell you why it's key, and I'm going to have to break the boundary for a second because I forgot... <laughs> the book. Mention this resource. This is a great just overview apologetics of scripture, but some of you, this is why this is important that we understand this. Because in recent years, there's been a movement, both in the scholarly community as well as in popular culture, to try to drive this narrative that there was never unanimity in the Christian church on what is scripture. But there's all these other documents that say various sundry of things, and instead what that means ultimately is we should question the doctrine that we believe today as Christians. 
This is, this is just one of many ways to undermine what truth is truth, ultimately getting at, I can live how I want to live. And here's where this comes in. Maybe you'll remember an author by the name of Dan Brown, who wrote a really best-selling novel called The Da Vinci Code. Listen to what he writes. He says, more than 80 gospels were considered for the New Testament, and yet only a relative few were chosen for inclusion, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The Bible as we know it today was, uh, was collated by the pagan Roman emperor, Constantine the Great. Constantine commissioned and financed a new Bible, which omitted those gospels that spoke of Christ's human traits and embellished those gospels that made him godlike. The earlier gospels were outlawed, gathered up and burned. The modern Bible was compiled and edited by men who possessed a political agenda to promote the divinity of the man, Jesus Christ, and to use his influence to solidify their own power base. Bart Ehrman, who is a uh, harsh critic of what you and I would deem a biblical view of Scripture, says this, this one form of Christianity that we call Orthodox Christianity, not like Eastern Orthodox Church, but true doctrinally sound Christianity, decided what the correct Christian perspective is. It decided who could exercise authority over Christian belief and practice. It determined what forms of Christianity would be marginalized, set aside, and destroyed. It also decided what books to canonize into Scripture and which books to set aside as heretical, teaching false ideas, heretical in, print, in uh, quotations, by the way. And then as a coup de grace, the victorious party rewrote the history of the controversy, making it appear like there had never been a conflict at all claiming that its own views had always been those of the majority of Christians at all times, has always been orthodox, the right beliefs, and that the opponents in conflict with other texts had always been splinter groups, people of heresy. All this is trying to drive at there's other documents out there from those times than what's in our Bible. Human people determined what 66 books would be the Bible, and they did so with an agenda. So how can you and I trust what we read in the Bible today? That's the message that is out there and why it is vital that you and I understand. Now, you may not be questioning this. That's great. Then let today just encourage your strength in the Bible. Or maybe you're not questioning it, but you know someone who goes, oh my goodness, I just was told, did you know there's a gospel of Judas, a gospel of Peter, a gospel of Thomas, a gospel, dun, 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 on down the line. And you're going, wow, I hadn't heard any of those. What do I, how do I respond? What do I say? Or maybe you're someone who is questioning and my hope is this will help provide some answers. So, what do we mean by canon? Canon is a word that simply means a rod, a staff, or a ruler. And it came over time to, to mean a rod, staff, or ruler that's used as a measuring rod. It's the standard. It's the norm. Theologically, when we speak of the canon of Scripture, we mean what are the authoritative documents that set the standard for what we believe and live? That's what we mean. And now, growing up in the church, growing up in the home of a pastor and theologian, I don't know that I really ever heard the word canon, secular or church. In the last 10 years, I hear the word canon all the time. What's canon in Star Wars? Is it all the books before Disney bought it, or is it what Disney made? What's, what's canon in Marvel? What's canon? It's, it's simply this. What's authoritative? What's the actual story? What are the actual, when we speak of Scripture, what are the authoritative Documents. Now, you and I, what we hold to as the canon of Scripture, those 
When you think about uh, our verse, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God. What, uh, what is breathed out by God? We would hold to the fact that there are 66 divinely inspired, breathed out books from God. Uh, the Old Testament contains 39 of them. The New Testament contains 27 of them. They run from Genesis to Leviticus, uh, to uh, uh, Revelation, not Leviticus. I mean, Leviticus, Leviticus is inspired. Um, now, if you go back and you got on this paper, uh, the Hebrew canon, the Hebrew Bible, the Bible that we would recognize as the Old Testament, the Jews would recognize as all their scriptures, is divided into three parts. There's the Torah, which would be the first five books as you and I know them. There would be what they call the prophets, divided into, into at least two sections, the former and the latter. And those, the former being Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, that would be one book for each, whereas we put two books for each. One book for each, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the book of the 12, that's Hosea through Malachi. Just all is one, one book, one, one, one uh, book that they, I mean, with, with the distinctions of where each one is, you know, this is Hosea, this is Joel, this is, but they just compile them as one. Then what's called the writings, that would be Psalms, Proverbs, Job. Then what's called the scrolls, you can see that there, Song of Solomon, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, Esther. Then Daniel, Ezra, and Nehemiah are put as one book. Sometimes in old documents, you'll see this referred to as Esdras, and then Chronicles again as one book. So in the Hebrew canon, the first book is Genesis, the last book is Chronicles. That's what you see in the Hebrew. So if you pick up a Hebrew Bible, even the Hebrew Bible I would study out of, you can't go through and, and play like it's a carbon copy of the order of your English Bible, because it's not. <laughs> it's just like this. Now, there's things we call apocrypha, and we'll get into this more as we go through. Apocrypha simply means hidden. Apocryphal works to, is referring to the fact that these documents, we don't really know who wrote them, or their authenticity is in doubt, or there's something about them that, that, that is not there. It doesn't mean all of them are horrible, some of them are, some of them are not. You see the Old Testament apocryphal books, and I won't, I won't read all of those, but you can see those there. If there's a slash, uh, it just means you see them appear in different ways uh, in different times. Some of them are not individual documents, but are additions to other parts of the Bible. You see the New Testament apocrypha, the New Testament uh, pseudographia, which is basically the difference between a pseudographia is when someone is writing something claiming to be someone they're not. They're, they're, they're pseudo, they're, they're deceiving, whereas Apocrypha, uh, they're, no, they're not claiming that. It's just a work written that's outside. And even in the New Testament Apocrypha, not all of them, uh, some are horrible and heretical, some are not heretical at all. They're just not, they're just not inspired by God. Uh, both in the Catholic Bible and in the Eastern Orthodox Bible, both of their Bibles will include various parts of the Apocrypha. So if you were to, you know, if you've got a Catholic, if you're ministering to a Catholic and you're walking there, say, well, you don't have the whole Bible. You Protestants don't have the whole Bible. You don't have the Apocrypha. And we'll cover why that is and why they have it, but that's just your basic, your basic reality. Now, here's, here's the reality you need to understand with, with the process of how this came about. When you go back to the ancient world, you don't have paper. You don't have pens with ink. You don't have typewriters. You don't have computers. You don't have printing presses. You don't have any of that. So the ability to, cop, to write something alone took a little bit of money and took a lot of time. The ability to then copy a single copy took money and time. So think about that. If, if in, 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 old, in Old Testament times, everything would be scrolls. You know, and some of those scrolls could be long. They're, and we wrap those things up. They're big like, hey, come over, check out my whole Bible. It takes up all of the shelf, 
all five shelves, six feet high, right? Like it's kind of tough to have a movable. When you get into the New Testament era, you start to see what we would call a codex, which is, uh, and this is speaking a little too generally, but it'll give you the visual. Think of a, a very ancient type of book, like the ancient relative to a book. But when we say a codex, I mean, a codex may be that big for just a portion of scripture because of the difference of materials and how they'd have to weave it together, writing on papyrus, different things. So the ability for scripture to be copied quickly, especially in the first century world, would be challenging. So think about it. Paul writes, Paul writes Philippians. There's that original document. It goes out to Philippi. They read it. Someone goes, man, we need to copy this. It may take a week for them to copy it. And then that one copy, we should copy, right? It's, you, it takes time. And you're thinking about an ancient world as the church is exploding, going at. Now, so there's a rate of copy and a challenge of materials. In the midst of that, for the early church, you're also dealing with extreme persecution at various times. In fact, the last great persecution of Diocletian before Constantine comes on the scene, that last great persecution, part of what was the core tenet is you go find people claiming to be Christians. If they will not give up their scriptures, burn them. So part of, we, I mean, we have a vast amount of ancient manuscripts of scripture. We would have even more amounts if there hadn't been the persecution specifically targeted at burning scripture because that was obviously how doctrine and, and preaching and things were transmitted. So there's this danger of persecution. There's also initially when Jesus leaves, you have the Old Testament scriptures and scrolls, but you have the primary way that people learn and preach is oral transmission. You're repeating. And for you and I, we, we half-hearted listen and have, don't, couldn't repeat stuff. That's not the ancient world. If that's the only way you've got to know something and repeat it is orally, you're pretty good at it. And if you go to oral cultures, you can see that to this day. But the danger is that oral teaching, as the apostles begin to die off, and Jesus has not returned in their lifetime, there is more of an effort to realize we need to write these things down. We don't know when the Lord's coming back. We need to write these things down. And so people begin to do that. And here's where it becomes key. As all these things are written down, you have the threat of heresy start to arise. And the classic, as far as canonization, the classic heretic that comes up is a man by the name of Marcion, who's in the middle of the second century, 144 AD. Marcion comes on the scene and he says, look, the Old Testament is not fulfilled in Christ and the gospel. It's superseded by the gospel. So the Old Testament's worthless. Get rid of it. And said the gospel is a whole new teaching brought to earth by Christ. And Christ speaks of a father who is a completely different God and being than the God of the Old Testament. The Old Testament God is harsh, judgmental, vindictive. He's the one who created the universe, which means by default that anything material, physical, is lesser, inferior, and morally wrong. But the New Testament God is loving and gracious and kind. He is pure spirit, and he sent Jesus to redeem us from the Old Testament God. And amongst all those after Christ, Paul is the only one who preached the true word. And so he creates his own He's one of the first to create what he said, this is the real Bible, edited parts of Luke and, and 10 of Paul's 13 letters. And so it's threats like this that, as we'll see in a second, though the church pretty well at this point knew what was scripture or not, they hadn't had the right threats to have to come in and go, no, let's be clear, that's not the word of God. 
This is the word of God. All these things are coming together that, that build into and stir this process. So you see, you see this process. You see this process takes place. You'll see in your cheat sheet, there's the oral principle. When, when, the, when Scripture, the Word of God, is being taught orally pretty exclusively, then you see the scriptural principle, the process where they begin writing it down. Things are moved from scrolls to codexes because it's more easily bound together. You see it being translated. We see even at this time, and by this time I mean the end of the first century, the beginning of the second century, so you're talking about 70 to 100 years after the life of Christ, you have men like Polycarp, Ignatius, Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria. By the way, Polycarp isn't just random. Polycarp was discipled by John the Apostle. He was the successor to John the Apostle in Ephesus. All three of them say that there's a threefold standard of authority for Christians. The prophets, by which they mean the Old Testament. The Lord, by which they mean the Gospels and the apostles by which they mean all of the apostolic letters. So within a hundred years, you already have the major church fathers, the major pastors of their days saying, here's the authority for Christians, the Old Testament, the gospels, uh, and the, uh, what you and I would know as the New Testament letters. Uh, it's in that time when we move to the canonical principle where all of a sudden heresies are stirring up and there's a recognition that not everything that claims to be God's word is God's word. We've known that, but there hasn't been a need to draw real distinct lines and combat that. Now, all of a sudden, there is that need. And here in these times, you see men like Irenaeus who crosses over those periods. He's clear. There's only four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You see um, Tertullian and Clement of Alexandria and Origen, later second century church fathers, they are even using the term the New Testament to refer to these collection of documents that you and I would know as the New Testament. There's what's called the Muratorian Fragment by the end of the century, which mentions the majority of the books of the New Testament. And this moves us in then to the closed canon. You see some of those major names. Eusebius, the church historian, is put together by Constantine to, to come up with a list of what's real scripture. And uh, he names every book that you and I know as scripture. In fact, he also names ones that are New Testament apocryphal books and makes it clear that they were not genuine scripture, but they're not heresy. And then these others that he names are heretical. And then you get to recognition, which is where later on in that century, in, in the fourth century, uh, you've got people like Athanasius who writes the letter in six, uh, six, uh, th- uh, 367 for Easter, who names all of the New Testament books that we have as scripture. We're in the West, the Council of Carthage affirming all of this. And, and as, as the church, so you have this process, as the church went through this, there are certain key things they're looking at. How do they determine when you get this writing? How do I determine? There's, there's really six factors that are there. Inspiration. Is there clear evidence that this writing was breathed out by God, by the Holy Spirit? It has to be inspired if it's going to be scripture. Uh, ap- uh, um, I'm getting tongue-tied. So let me just not sound like a fool here. Is it apostolic? Does it come from the teachings of the apostles in Christ? Does it come from their teachings? And that means did either an apostle write it or like Mark? Well, Mark's written by John Mark. John Mark wasn't an apostle. Yeah, but it's well known in church history that John Mark wrote the gospel of Mark based on Peter's testimony. Well, Luke's not an apostle. You're right, but Luke only traveled with Paul for all of his life. 
And is clear in both Luke and Acts, Acts he experienced, Luke he's clear that he consulted multiple and many eyewitnesses. So therefore it falls in there. Is it apostolic? Does it come from their teaching? Antiquity, does it come from the time of the apostles? Does it come from that time? Or, or can we only find evidence for it after the apostles are gone? In which case, well, obviously it's not scripture. Um, what, what I've put down there is uh, Catholicity, which means is it, is it not Catholic as Roman Catholic, but is it Catholic in the literal meaning universal? Does it speak to all churches at all time? Which is really interesting when you think about the fact that we have personal letters in the New Testament that as the church looked and recognized, yeah, this letter may be to Timothy, this letter may be to Philemon, but actually it speaks to all churches at all times. That's real interesting to think about in terms of don't ever think that, well, I'm not Philemon. I don't have a, I don't have a runaway slave who's coming back. It doesn't really apply to me, baloney. It does apply because it's God-inspired word. It's a question of how does it apply? Uh, is it publicity, meaning that is it read in, in the practice of church, is it read from regularly? Think about Paul commanding Timothy, read scripture out loud regularly. Is it come, is it read regularly? Is it read as authoritative? Is it doctrinally sound? Does it line up with the rest of the teaching of scripture? And these standards are which the early church, really the, the, the orthodox early church by orthodox, I mean correct believing people who didn't create heresy. These are the standards that they applied to all the different writings that are there. And these, time and time again, only come out to what we see. So, let's talk about the Old Testament and the New Testament, the collection and preservation of the canon. The Old Testament, the law, the first five books of Scripture, almost immediate acceptance we see in Scripture as the Word of God. Look at this. Right after Deuteronomy, you've got Joshua. Listen to Joshua 1.7. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to the law. All my servant Moses commanded you. Do not turn from it. Right off the bat, and by law, that's referencing Genesis through Deuteronomy, not just the Ten Commandments. Right off the bat, in Joshua, we already see the first five books of Scripture are viewed as God's Word. And then we see that take place all throughout the rest of the Old Testament. What about the prophets? The prophets were, were viewed as the mouthpieces of God. But not just prophets like we think of Jeremiah. There are kings who are called prophets. There are priests who are called prophets. There are princes who are called prophets. There are farmers who are called prophets. From Joshua to Chronicles, that would include everything uh, uh, viewed as the prophets. Samuel, 1 Samuel 10, 25, added to the prophetic writings. David wrote down the instructions from the Lord regarding the temple viewed as prophetic. Daniel recognized Jeremiah as being inspired canonical scripture in Daniel 9, 2. We see that throughout the, the books of the Kings and Chronicles. All the kings are, are running up against prophets who, who, who add into the writing of Scripture. David with Samuel, Nathan, and Gad, Solomon, Nathan, Abaha, uh, Abijah, and Edo, Rehoboam, and on down the line, on down the line. We see the last three prophetic books bring an end to the collection. Malachi 4.5. Malachi 4.5, and I'm sorry I don't have all these marked to easily turn to because there's too many of them. Malachi 4.5, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament written chronologically. And what, is, what does God say there? I'm not sending you another prophet till Elijah comes. And who does the New Testament say that the Elijah to come is? John the Baptist. 
There's a closing of the Old Testament canon. There's not going to be another prophet till the Elijah comes who's going to announce. What is he going to announce? He's going to announce the coming of the king, Jesus. And so this period in between Old and New Testament, we would call the intertestamental period. And this is where you see that Old Testament apocryphal literature being written. Books of Maccabees, you see them writing these various things. You see even in those books, actually, in, in, um, in various apocryphal books, they actually talk about how the Holy Spirit left after the time of Malachi. And they even give accounts about how Ezra, after the books of the Old Testament had been destroyed, sat down and painstakingly rewrote all of them. And God spoke to Ezra and said, these are to be viewed as greater than all these other works you have. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff in there, even pointing to uh, the, the uniqueness of the 39 Old Testament books as you and I know them. Josephus, Josephus even makes the statement, the great Jewish historian Listen to what he says, speaking about the Old Testament and the, uh, the Apocrypha here. He said, and there is no discrepancy in what is written, seeing that on the contrary, the prophets alone had this privilege, obtaining their knowledge of the most remote and ancient history through the inspiration which they owed to God and committing to write a clear account of their events of their own time, just as they occurred it follows, I say, that we do not possess myriads of inconsistent books conflicting with each other. Our books, those which are justly accredited, are but two in 20 and contain the record of all time. He says there's 22. Don't let that worry you. Remember, the Hebrew Bible combines different books. They're not 39 books in the Hebrew Bible because they combine them. There's either 22 or 24, depending on how you want to count it. And uh, depending, different Jewish authors counted it both ways. But listen to what he says also in the same deal. He names these five books of Moses, the prophets subsequent, and the remaining four books containing hymns to God. From Artaxerxes to our own time, the complete history has been written. Saying So from Artaxerxes when Malachi was finished to now, even more has been written, but it has been deemed not worthy of equal credit because of the failure of succession of the prophets." Even the Jewish historians acknowledge these other works are not on par with Scripture. And Jesus makes an interesting statement in Matthew 23, something that uh, as, as getting ready for tonight, something I had not even really noticed or pondered before. He makes an interesting statement, Matthew 23, verse 35. Jesus speaking, he's calling out the, the Jews. He says, behold, I'm sending you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge. You will persecute city to city so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth from the right blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. You go, well, that's real random. I mean, Abel, we get Abel. Abel is, is that, that righteous son of of uh, who, who, who's deemed a prophet because his blood cries out. But who's Zechariah? Malachi is the last prophet. Remember, the Hebrew Bible, Malachi is not the last book. The last book is Chronicles. And who's the last prophet that appears in Chronicles? Zechariah. What Jesus is saying is he is quoting the authority of the entire Old Testament as you and I know it to the exclusion of the Apocrypha. Not only this, but Luke, speaking to the disciples on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection, makes this interesting statement. Luke 24, verse 44. 
He said, these are my words, which I spoke to you while I was still with you about all the things. Oh, sorry, this is not the, the road to Emmaus. This is with his disciples later. Forgive me. All these things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now you and I hear that and we go, okay, law, we got that first five books, prophets, Psalms, but that seems to leave out some of the others, Wes, you mentioned when you said that third category is the writings, except that when you read even Philo, who would be a, a contemporary of Christ, who's a Jew, Philo speaks about the Old Testament scriptures and said they're in three, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms because the Psalms is the first book of the writings and it's the largest book. So when Jesus says the law, the prophets and the Psalms, what is he saying? He's saying, I am telling you the whole Old Testament testifies to me. And in you and I speak Genesis to Malachi. He doesn't leave any of them out. There is massive, not only this, but we see throughout and time doesn't give us to just walk through all the different Old Testament passages where we see the Old Testament citing the Old Testament as the authoritative, inerrant, inspired word of God. Some, and it's, it's, it's acknowledged scholarly that the Old Testament canon was complete. The Jews recognized this as the canon in between the fourth and second centuries. In those, 34 of our 39 books were never questioned. There were five that there was some discussion on, Ecclesiastes, because it seemed too skeptical, too depressing. Song of Solomon, because it seemed too sensual. Ezekiel, because a small group of people had an issue with a certain aspect of it. Proverbs, and then Esther. Esther was simply because of an absence of God's name. But again, when I say there was dispute, that doesn't mean they didn't think they were. It meant that there was conversation had because they were trying to do the exact same things the New Testament church did, which is compare everything to Scripture. In addition, there was pseudographical work and there was apocryphal work, and both of them were not held on the same place. So in Palestine, where, where Jesus was, there was the accepted Old Testament, like you and I have seen it. The only difference is in Alexandria, Alexandria, Egypt, right? The ancient wonders of the world, the library at Alexandria, which we are devastated at the loss of the fire of because there's a lot of ancient works of literature that would shed light on a lot of stuff historically if we had access to that, but it burned down and we lost it all uh, way long before any of us ever were living or most of our direct ancestors. In Alexandria, though, it was a hub for Jewish people abroad. And in Alexandria, where they translated the Hebrew Old Testament into the Greek, which we call the Septuagint. If you ever look in your Bible and you see something with a capital LXX, that's shorthand for the Septuagint. That's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. Because in Alexandria, they don't speak Hebrew. They speak Greek. And so as Jews got more accustomed there, they couldn't speak the Hebrew. In the Alexandria place, they did seem to acknowledge the Apocrypha but again, they were already living outside of what was considered sound. So what do you do with the apocryphal books? Are they canon? No. Let me just give you some reasons why they're not. We've already seen Philo rules it out. Josephus rules it out. It should be enough for us that Jesus rules it out. But they're not Hebrew canon. The New Testament never quotes an apocryphal book. It never refers to them as authoritative or canonical. The only thing you see is in Jude and 2 Peter, there is a pseudographical work called the Apocalypse of Enoch or 1 Enoch that you see them quote a saying from, but they don't quote it to say the whole book is true. They simply quote it as a specific example 
which is no different than Paul quoting a Cretan poet in Titus or quoting a Roman or a, an Athenian god in Acts 17. Okay, there's no place that you see these things quoted in the New Testament uh, as authoritative. One, the earliest manuscripts we have of any of them date from after the time that the canon was closed. All the church, major church fathers argued vehemently against them. None of the greatest Greek manuscripts contained them. You see in the church, uh, in, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, when you find the Dead Sea Scrolls at Qumran, Qumran, this great hub of, of Jewish learning, you see that uh, there's, they find fragments of scripture, they find hundreds of books, they find some apocryphal books, but there are no commentaries on a single apocryphal book, only on the biblical Old Testament books. Not only that, but only the canonical books of the Old Testament were found on the special parchment with special script. There is a difference, even in the community at Qumran, that shows that they were there. Not only that, but if you read the apocryphal works, some of them contain teaching that is flat out heretical. Some of them contain stories that are extra biblical and fanciful. Some of them contain themes that are immoral, like God helping Judith lie. Some of them contain chronological errors. Tobith has claimed to be alive for the Assyrian conquest and Jeroboam's revolt. The problem is those things happened 290 or 210 years apart. It's impossible. And they fell all the tests. Were they written by a prophet? No. Were they confirmed by an act of God? No. Did they show the power of God? No. Did they tell the truth about God? Not always. Were they accepted by the people of God? Not the Jews in Israel, nor by the church of God. They are rejected. So why are those apocryphal books in the Catholic Bible as scripture? A couple of you know, because we've had this conversation. Here's the reason why. Because Martin Luther showed up on the scene and blew things up in the Roman Catholic Church's face. Because Martin Luther sees the Roman Catholic Church selling indulgences. What's an indulgence? Hey, Thomas, your great-grandpappy, he's in purgatory. And I kid you not when I say this, he's going to be in purgatory for 39 million years. If you'll pay me that indulgence, I can knock 5 million off for him. I, you think I'm kidding with those numbers. That's the kind of stuff that was out there. Okay, so purgatory is key to sell indulgences, which is key to build your buildings. Where does purgatory come from? Not a single verse in the Old Testament. Purgatory is a doctrine that built on a certain tradition from one guy who looked at a single line in the apocryphal book of 2 Maccabees. And the Protestants blasted the Roman Catholic Church over trying to quote. So what did the Roman Catholic Church do at the Council of Trent in the mid-1500s? The Apocrypha is officially canon. Not because of putting it through the test of whether it passes for the word of God, actually rejecting that test, but because it has to be considered canon so they can still teach what they teach as authoritative to get the money they need to do what they want. So unlike what we've seen so far with the Old Testament, the claim of, of Airmen and Dan Brown that it was all a power play, that would apply to the Roman Catholic Church in the mid-1500s. All right, we've got 10 minutes left. I know we've got choir folk. I'm paying attention to the clock. Don't worry. On to the New Testament. Here we go. New Testament, they, the early church, the same standards. 
Is it apostolic? Does it have apostolic authority? Was the writer confirmed by acts of God? Does it tell the truth? Is it doctrinally sound? Does it, is it powerful? Does it change lives? Was it accepted by the people of God? Did the early readers accept it? Did, did the people after them accept it? And, 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 and they're, 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 there's a demand here to figure out and then come together on what is the authoritative New Testament. Besides the heretical aspect, there's a missionary aspect. We got to take the gospel and go make disciples of the whole world. So we better know what on earth we're actually telling them is the gospel. Because by the way, the gospel doesn't say, go get people to pray a prayer and raise their hand and be a convert. It says making disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them. Which goes on until all of us go home. There's a growth aspect. So process of canonization for the New Testament um, would go through the same thing. So let me just give you, as we walk through here. So we know inside of Scripture, John mentions in John 20 that there's, a, that there's accounts of, of Christ's life. We know from Luke there's other accounts of Christ's life. Paul makes reference to apostolic traditions and teachings in 1 Thessalonians and 1 Corinthians, meaning the oral instruction of, of there. We know from 1 Thessalonians, Scripture was to be read to all churches. We know Revelation 1, if you read it, it's a blessing to all. Uh, circulating, these letters were circulated around. Most of these letters had a wider authority than, than to just the original audience. We've seen that. Collecting, all, all, the Old Testament, all the Old Testament is considered Scripture. We saw that. They would all have considered it Scripture. But then look at this with me, Second Peter chapter 3. And we've looked at this before, 2 Peter chapter 3. Now, 2 Peter was written in the mid-60s. The mid-60s, within 30 years of Christ's death, or just after 30 years of Christ's death. Look what Peter says. And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, 2 Peter 3.15. Just as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of things in which some are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do the rest of the scriptures. Peter just put all of Paul's letters on the same level as scripture. By the mid-60s. Not Constantine in the mid-300s. We see Jude quotes 2 Peter, or if you want to say that 2 Peter was written before Jude, 2 Peter quotes Jude. We see Paul in 1 Timothy 5.18 quoting Luke 10.7 as authoritative scripture. Which means that by the mid-60s then, if Paul's quoting Luke as authoritative scripture and Peter's calling Paul authoritative scripture, then you've at least got those that are there. We find as we move on from the time of with inside of scripture quoting scripture, uh, you see... Um, you see in apocryphal uh, works in the New Testament and, and then in the church father's writings, Matthew is quoted as scripture. Mark is quoted. Luke is quoted. John is quoted. Acts is quoted. Time didn't allow me to give you all the different people who quote all of the epistles. Within the first hundred years of the New, Te of the New Testament being written, all 27 books were regarded as canonical and being translated in other languages. Polycarp quotes Matthew, John, Romans through 1 Timothy, uh, 1 Peter, 1 and 2 John. And think about that with 2 John. 
Most of us never read it because it's itty-bitty and seems like we don't pay it. Polycarp's quoting it. And it's not like he could just shoot off texts like we can. It took a lot of effort to write. Justin Martyr quotes all four Gospels. He quotes every one of Paul's letters. He quotes 1 Peter and Revelation. Irenaeus quotes from all the New Testament books, save Philemon, James, 2 Peter, and, 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 and 3 John. Clement of Alexandria, the, sa- the same, except uh, not 2 Timothy and 2 John. Um, Shepherd of Hermes, which is an apocryphal work, but it's not a heretical work. It's just a later on written work, quotes James extensively. We find that in the church, the church writings of the church fathers of the second and third centuries, they quote every single verse of the New Testament but 11 verses. Which is why we could, if we lost every biblical manuscript we have, we could reconstruct the New Testament from the, church, the quotes of the church fathers alone. Because they quoted it so much. Now, as, as the church waded through and, and, and put all of the New Testament under the same lens of standard, is it apostolic? Is it, in, is, it, is it ancient? Is it inspired? Is it doctrinally sound? There's 20 books that never do you see any kind of discussion whatsoever. Matthew to Philemon, 1 Peter and 1 John. There's seven books that there was some level of discussion over. They were never considered anti-canon. They weren't considered uncanon. There just was some discussion. Hebrews was one. Because at some point, very quickly, people didn't know who wrote it. The, obviously, the original recipients did, but at some point, people didn't know who wrote it. The East never struggled with it. They said Paul wrote it. The West was a little uncertain, uh, but ultimately, everyone checked it down, all the other standards, and it fit. James was questioned only because James makes that statement that everybody asks about. I'll tell you, I'll show you my faith by my works. But wait a minute, Paul says grace is not, faith does not come by works. The problem, though, isn't with James's theology, it's with our poor interpretation of it. Same with Martin Luther, who hated James and said he wished it wasn't in the Bible. So that was the reason there was a little discussion over James. Second Peter was questioned, partially because the style of writing is different from First Peter, but it's very likely First Peter was actually not pinned by Peter, but by his secretary Silvanus, which was very common. Just FYI, Paul didn't also handwrite every letter he writes. In fact, if you get to some of the end of Paul's letters and he said, it is I, Paul, it's because he would at the end say, you want to know it's me who wrote this? Here's my big sloppy signature. He would use a secret. He would talk it out loud and have someone pin it down for him, which makes sense given what's there. The other aspect of Second Peter and Jude is the fact that both quote from the book of Enoch. And that was, a, what do they mean by that? Is it okay? Is it not okay? Second and third John was primarily just because they're short little small letters that seemed rather private. Revelation was only, was only discussed because certain heretics kind of hijacked some stuff from it and, and it made some uneasy, but it's not because of the actual content. It's because of what the heretics did with it. So here's what you've got. You've got no serious concern over any of the 27 books. Now catch me. There were seven of them. There was discussion, but there was discussion through those six standards and a determination. No, they fit. That, that fits. It's clear that's there. And besides all of this, here's the other key. Scripture tells us how to challenge Scripture. The Holy Spirit will testify to you what I said. The Holy Spirit will bring remembrance what my words are. Test the spirits. First John. Uh, there, there's, a, there's a standard and a test, so it's not just through the six standards. There's also the reality of the Holy Spirit. So there's a lot. I won't give you all the names of all the pseudographical and apocryphal work, but here's what you need to understand. All of those other works 
For instance, the Gospel of Thomas, it was written over 100 years after Christ. It contains fanciful stories of Jesus turning clay into pigeons as a boy and cursing other boys and killing them. Well, obviously we see the problem there. It wasn't written by an apostle. No one really knows who wrote it. It was written 100 years after Christ and it claims things about Christ that seem to be in error with what we know about Christ for sure. Chunk it out. You've got things like the Gospel of Judas, which in some of these have what ties to what we call Gnosticism, which was a heresy that, that was anti the physical and really not even just anti the physical that completely rewrote what the gospel is. All of these found to be, found to be false and very different than scripture. With apocryphal books, you have some that are really good. The Didache was written, was written about 80 years after Christ's death. It was held in high regard. It was a great value. It was, a, it was like a practical instruction manual for how to live the Christian life. No different than books you and I might reference today that are really helpful in talking about how to live the Christian life. But the Didache, the Shepherd of Hermas, the, the, the Epistle of Clement, all of which are good, they're historical, they're, they're, they're understood. All of them were not put in Scripture because they weren't written by an apostle or an associate of an apostle, and they were not of the time of the apostles. And so the claim that if they were really political-driven, every one of those would have been put in Scripture because of their popularity and how much they were used in the early church. Not a one of them was put in scripture or ever even considered on par with scripture because they failed the standard of test that the church walked through, which is why you and I can be confident that the Bible that you and I have, the 66 books, through the means that God has always worked, inspiring it through human authors and playing it out in the course of history, God has divinely protected for you and I from all sorts of different things. And wouldn't you know, it's going to be back here because I did something different with my notes. Nope. Well, I didn't pick it up off the printer. I was going to read you a quote to end, but I'll just, I'll just paraphrase part of it, which is this. When you really study the canonization of Scripture and how we got the Bible, you do not find the church picking what Scripture versus not. You find the church throwing away its authority to recognize the authority of Scripture. It's not them determining Scripture, it was them recognizing Scripture and falling under the authority of documents that you and I know, if you've read your Bible, make life according to the flesh really hard. But the church said, nope, this is of God, therefore we will submit to His Word. Were there political people engaged? Oh yeah, Constantine definitely had political motives. But were there God-fearing pastors and God-fearing men and women followers of Christ who recognized and held faithful to the word and preserved it and endured persecution and heresy and all those different factors so that we could know the word truly? Yes. Which means you and I can be confident about the word that we have. There's so much more we go into, but that's the best I can do in 40 minutes on a Wednesday night, giving an overview. So hopefully it helps. You got questions? Let me know. I'll just reference. If you want to dive deeper, again, this is a great book. Just overview over all aspects of scriptural apologetics in defense of the Bible, as well as a book. I don't have the dust jacket because it was all ripped up when it got to me. A book called The Canon. Uh, the Canon of the Bible, I believe, by F.F. F. Bruce, and it dives really heavy into the whole whole aspect of that process. So uh, let me pray for us, and um, thanks for being here tonight. I'm glad everybody's safe.
Monday provided a wonderful means of living out Sunday's sermon. Uh, and um, feel free to linger, feel free to go to choir, and we'll see you Sunday. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of your word. And God, thank you that even though there are people like a Dan Brown and a Bart Ehrman who throw these spurious claims out, if we really examine the evidence, God, they are twisting facts to pursue their own agenda to rewrite who you are in our image. So Lord, thank you that the facts do testify. Lord, there are many other writings. But praise the Lord that we can see clearly they weren't ever accepted and they fail the standards that have always been there for understanding and determining your word. And God, thank you that we can be confident if we open up a good, solid translation of your word. God, it's your word. It's living and it's active. It's powerful. It's convicting. It's piercing. There's nothing way we can hide from it. It's... it's um, uh, it does not come back void, but it accomplishes what you say, and we can stand firm on it. And Lord, like the early church, we better know what's your word and what's not, because your word demands that we be willing to lay our lives down. And I certainly don't want to lay my life down for something that's not your word. But if it's your word, may we be willing not just to lay our lives down, but to live our lives down every day on the basis of it. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.